The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Turn your Bible to Psalm 16. I'll give you one second to get there and then we'll get started, okay? One. Psalm 16, a michtam of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my Lord. My goodness is nothing apart from you. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Their sorrows shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer, nor take up their names on my lips. O Lord, you are the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have a good inheritance. I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Therefore, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That was used by the Apostle Peter, I believe, in, uh, got to get it, Acts chapter 4, maybe. Is that correct? Where he was speaking of David, and he cited that psalm right there. What did David say? Let me see if I can find this. It might be in Acts 2, but I think it's... Give me one second. The Lord said to my Lord... Uh, uh, yes, it's. I'm sorry, it was in Acts chapter 2. I should have known that. Anyway, it says, For David says concerning him... This is in Acts chapter 2, Peter defending the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh will also rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. For you have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of joy in your presence. And then he goes on to explain why it can't be David that he's speaking of. David wrote the psalm, but then he says, Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. So he says it can't be David. He can't be speaking about himself in the psalm because there he is. He's dead and he's corrupted. We're proclaiming to you the Christ, the Messiah. And it says that day 3,000 believed, right? Pretty wonderful. And that's a pattern all in itself because how many people died at the uh, golden calf episode? 3,000. They had rejected the Lord at the giving of the law, right? The law brings death, but the Spirit gives life. So he's making a point. God took 3,000 lives at the giving of the law. He gave 3,000 new life at the giving of the new covenant. Patterns and parallels all through the the Bible. But we better get into the sermon. We're in Numbers 28, 11 through 15. It's entitled, The New Moon Offerings. 
At the beginning of your months, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year without blemish. Three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour is a grain offering mixed with oil for each bull. Two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil for the one ram. And one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for each lamb. As a burnt offering of sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Their drink offering shall be half a hen of wine for a bull, one-third of a hen for a ram, and one-fourth of a hen for a lamb. This is the burnt offering for each month throughout the months of the year. Also, one kid of the goats as a sin offering to the Lord shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. You notice a lot of these sacrifices and offerings are the same as last week. And so there's going to be some repetition from last week of the typology in Christ. And there's also some new things in here as well. Um, I decided to do that because next week we're going to have more of the same thing and we'll abbreviate it even more. So you'll see this going on, a little more abbreviation with each one as you learn what the typology is. When speaking of a right relationship with God, idolatry is one of the biggest problems that man faces. Man has found every possible thing in heaven and on earth to worship. We worship mountains. We worship forests. We worship stars. We worship women or men. Some people worship their pets. The list is long and sad. Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 1. There is the creation and there is the creator. Because we can't see the creator, we may steer away from worshiping lest we look silly at worshiping something that we cannot see. Even if the evidences for his existence are plain and obvious. We talked about that in the prophecy update today, didn't we? Somebody's leaving evolution because he understands there is something going on which is intelligent in design. As a species, we don't tend to think clearly. Much of the reason for that is because we are infected with sin. That clouds our understanding. But we also just don't want to expend the energy to think about things. Thinking, contemplating, and studying can be hard work, and it can drain us. It's a lot easier to just do other less challenging things. But ironically, some people actually spend more energy trying to challenge what is obvious than they ever would in coming to a full understanding of those obvious things. For example, evolutionists spend all kinds of time and energy attempting to disprove the very evidences that God has left of his hand in creation. Bible scholars have been known to spend countless hours attempting to tear apart the Bible instead of studying it as it is intended. Oh my! Our text first comes from Psalm 81. Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp with the lute. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. For this is a statute for Israel, a law for the God of Jacob. The new moon, just so you don't mix the two up, the new moon is when there's no moon. The full moon in the next clause is what we would think of as the full moon. They're talking about two separate things in that one psalm, just in case you're not aware of that. Why is there a new moon? Why is there a full moon? And how do we know exactly when they will be? Why is there an equinox or a solstice that can be easily determined year by year, even hundreds or thousands of years into the future? Why is it that men who sleep with men cannot bear children? Why is it that a person was able to identify the makeup and properties of elements? 
which had not yet been discovered, so that when they were discovered, the properties and makeup of them matched what the person had already figured out? The answer to these things and to an almost infinite number of related questions is that it is because there is order and harmony in the creation. If the universe started in chaos, the universe would still be in chaos. No matter how long the chaotic continues, it will never become organized. Reading about the offerings to the Lord which were required of Israel is a study in order. There is harmony in them. There is wisdom in them, and there is structure in them. When we read passages such as the one today, we should try to look beyond the simple words themselves and attempt to figure out why the Creator placed them here and what He is attempting to show us through them. That is where the real treasure can be found. We have come across so much in the past, and we will come across more today. This is certain because great things are to be found in His superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is the monthly offerings. It's verses 11 through 15. Verse 11, at the beginnings of your months, and in heads your months. Here the word rosh, or head, signifies the first, or beginning. The word now turns to the third mandated offering, which is given for a specific time, that of the beginning of the month. Mm -hmm. Thus, the required offerings have gone from the daily in verses 1 through 8, we saw that last week, to the weekly, meaning that of the Sabbath in verses 9 and 10, we saw that also last week, and now they go to the monthly offerings, daily, weekly, monthly. You can see that there's order, there's structure, and there's harmony. This monthly event is something which has only been mentioned in an incidental way so far. In Numbers 10, verse 10, it said this, Also, in the day of your gladness, in your appointed feasts, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over the sacrifices of your peace offerings, and they shall be a memorial for you before your God. I am the Lord your God. Nothing else has been said of this to explain why the beginning of the month is singled out. The reason for it being later called the new moon is because the Hebrew calendar was based on the cycle of the moon. It is a 30-day calendar commencing each month at the time of the new moon. As the beginning of the month is the time of the new moon, that means that the 15th of the month is the time of the full moon. Thus, the Passover occurring on the 14th of the month, as stated in Exodus 12, means that the exodus of the people occurring on the 15th of the month was the most propitious time for them to depart. Moses and Aaron were called for by night, and they were ready when the moon was full. The departure would have allowed them the most light possible for their escape. The 15th also corresponds to the beginning of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is mandated in Leviticus 23. Here it says, And on the 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it, but you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. The exact offerings which are mentioned there to be made by fire for that feast will be outlined later in this same chapter, in verses 17 through 25. This beginning of the month, also known as the time of the new moon, is now noted as having a mandated offering which is to be associated with it. That begins with the words of verse 11 continuing, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord. Here an offering is to be made le Yehovah, or 
to the Lord. As nothing has yet been specified concerning the new moon, such as was specified, for example, in the giving of the Sabbath, it begs the question, what is the significance of this time of the month? There must be a reason why the beginning of the month or the new moon requires a mandatory offering. Oddly, the Bible never explicitly says. Thus, an explanation can only be inferred. The fact that the day was to be announced by the blowing of the silver trumpets certainly elevated the respect the day received. Four basic reasons for blowing of the silver trumpet were given back in the chapter where we evaluated that. The first was for the gathering of the people. The second, for the advancement of the people from their camps. Third, for remembrance in battle. And fourth, as a memorial before God at various times. The only one which applies here would be as a memorial before God. The silver of the trumpets pictured redemption. Silver always pictures redemption in the Bible. That there were two of them pictured the proclamation of God's word given in two testaments. Do you all remember that from that sermon? Because if you don't, you know what you can do this afternoon. Go back and watch it again. Thus, blowing these trumpets at the time of the new moon was to be a memorial before God at a particular time of life, which points to Christ. As the blowing of the trumpets was to coincide with the offerings to be presented, then they are calling forth a remembrance of what the offerings represent in typology as they anticipated Christ. But not all of the offerings were to be called out in order to be remembered. For example, the sin offerings, which this day does have a sin offering, which pictured Christ's life as a sin offering, did not have the trumpets blown over them. It would be as if calling sin to remembrance. Nobody wants to do that. You want your sins expiated, not remembered. Rather, sin is expiated and it is gone. The trumpets, according to Numbers 10, show that they were only to be blown over the burnt offering mentioned here, along with any peace offerings which are not mentioned here. Those burnt offerings consisted of, verse 11 continues, two young bulls. Parim bene bakar shenaim, bulls, son of ox, two. The par or bull comes from the word parar, which carries the meaning of defeat or make void, although it can be variously translated. In this, it is a type of Christ who defeated the devil, making void that which the devil had wrought. Bakar comes from a word meaning to inquire or to seek out. Being a son of such an ox looks to Christ who seeks out those he would redeem, just as the Lord is said to seek out his sheep in Ezekiel chapter 34. This is the first time that two bulls instead of just one are offered, and no explanation is given for it. And so we must think it through. The number two signifies that there is a difference. In one, there's no difference, but in two, there is a difference. There is another. Bullinger notes that in two things, the second may be included for help and deliverance. Such would make complete sense for the reason of having two bulls. The first looks to the work of Christ accomplished for the people. We've seen that every time the parar has been used. We've seen it again and again. We saw it last week. The second anticipates help and deliverance in the month ahead. As the first day of the month stands as representative of the entire month, the one bull looks to Christ's accomplished work, and the second looks to the work Christ continues to accomplish. In other words, he has defeated the devil, and the one is a remembrance of that, but we still look to him to deliver us from the devil, of which the second is given in anticipation of that. Does everybody agree that the devil still comes after you? Yes. Absolutely. That is what the second bull is picturing. All right, we have to infer that. It doesn't say it explicitly anywhere in Scripture, but what does it say? Flee from the devil and he will flee from you, etc. 
Okay, we can infer that that is the case. Verse 11 going on, one ram, ve'ayil echad, and ram one. The word ayil comes from a word denoting strength. The ram reflects the total commitment of Christ who offered all of his natural strength to his father. He is fully sufficient to redeem all. Now you all know before I go on that Doug over in Ireland does a painting for every sermon that we do. And this week, I was so excited. My hair standing up just talking about this. He drew a picture of Christ and all of these sacrificial animals that he's talking about. But the ram is where his nostrils are. And so you see the ram horns. And I just got the biggest kick out of that. All of everything he does, he's thinking about Jesus and about how Jesus is these sacrifices. It's just marvelous. You go and look at that today. And if you're on Facebook, send him a thank you because he did. It just, every week I get giddy when I see his paintings. But this week, the ram thing, just, it blew me away. Wonderful stuff. Verse 11 continues, and seven lambs in their first year. Kebasim bene shana shiva. Lambs, son of year, seven. And what did Doug do? Seven little lambs in a row. Just beautiful little lambs. Wonderful stuff. The lamb, or kebes, signifies to dominate. The type of animal looks to Christ who dominated over sin. Seven of them pictures Christ. Seven is the number of spiritual perfection, emblematic of his spiritually perfect work. The first year signifies innocence, just as Christ was innocent. You've all seen a one-year-old lamb? It's the epitome of innocence, the little thing romping around, and it's just beautiful, right? Through his innocence, Christ, he prevailed over the law. He dominated over sin, and he destroyed it. This is what we are to see in these seven lambs of the first year. And in them, as with the other animals, they were all to be, verse 11 going on, without blemish. Temimim, perfect. As with all animals presented as burnt offerings to the Lord, they were to be without spot, without blemish, and perfect. Again, the quality looks to Christ who bore no sin before God. As seen last week, and I'm repeating again this week, Peter provides exactly this explanation. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Verse 12, three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour is a grain offering. As seen in the previous sermon, the number 10 in Scripture signifies perfection of divine order. It implies that nothing is wanting and that the number and the order is perfect and the whole cycle is complete. The tenth part is given as representative of the whole. So you have one-tenth of a part, it represents the whole tenth, okay? In this case, it is three-tenths of an ephah. The reason this specific amount will be mentioned is in this same verse. The grain offering is to be of solet or fine flour. As seen last week, solet is from an unused root meaning to strip. It's flour as of chipped off, and thus it is fine flour. It is generally considered, even when not specifically stated, that wheat was the flour used in an offering. It would be the best of things offered to the greatest of beings, meaning the Creator. In this, it is a picture of Jesus Christ. First, that it is a division of a tenth that represents the whole, showing that nothing is wanting and that his offering is perfect. And through his work, the whole cycle is complete. He is the perfection of divine order. That it is solet, or the finest flower of wheat, looks to his purity. It is a fitting emblem of Christ, who is the bread of life and the one who provides everlasting life to those who partake of him. Thus, the offering is an acknowledgement of this to God. It is to be, verse 12 continues, mixed with oil. 
The shemen, or oil, is said to be balal, or mixed into the grain. The oil pictures the Spirit of God. Though Christ is a man, he is fully endowed with the Holy Spirit. So he's fully man and he's fully God. It looks to Christ the God-man. Verse 12 continues, for each bull. The amount three-tenths is given based on the size of the animal. This was seen in Numbers 15. And the amounts mentioned here are consistent with what is presented there. As this is the largest animal offered, the grain offering is sized accordingly. For the next offering, it is less. Verse 12 continues, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour is a grain offering mixed with oil for the one ram. A tenth division is again made, representing divine perfection. But this time it is smaller to correspond with a smaller animal. And then, once again, the amount decreases with the third animal offering. Verse 13, and one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for each lamb. The same grain offering mixed in the same manner and carrying the same symbolism is again repeated. But this time the amount is one-tenth in order to correspond with the small size of the animal. All of these together are to be, verse 13 going on, as a burnt offering of sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Again, as with the daily and weekly offerings, we look to these words and find the same symbolism in Christ. In the offering of his life, his works, his perfection, and his sacrifice and fulfillment of the law, he was considered as a sweet aroma, pleasing to God the Father. This is explicitly stated by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. Every bit of this pictures Jesus Christ. We've seen this in other passages. We're seeing it again today. It's all the same symbolism. Everything points to Christ and what he would do for us. The people of Israel were required to give these monthly offerings as a sort of parable in anticipation of what was to come in him. These went on month by month as a memorial before God that his covenant stood firm until the time that Christ would come and he would fulfill it. And he would initiate a new covenant through his perfect work and life. It is his life alone which is truly the offering and sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. As with the daily and weekly offerings, along with these monthly burnt offerings, with their grain offerings, there were also to be drink offerings presented. Verse 14, their drink offering shall be half a hen of wine for a bull, one-third of a hen for a ram, and one-fourth of a hen for a lamb. The drink offering amounts are the same as were recorded for the same type of offerings in Numbers chapter 15. However, unlike the daily offerings we looked at last week, which were said to be shakar, or strong drink, these here are to be yain, or wine. First, the nesek, or drink offering, comes from a word which means to cover. The idea is that when the drink offering is poured out, it will cover that onto which it is poured. The drink offering of yayin, or wine, looks to the merging together of cultural expressions into a result. If you don't remember that, we talked about it in the Jonah sermons. The thing that ought to happen can happen, symbolized by wine. In the drink offering, it signifies rest and celebration. Such a drink offering is only offered after entry into the land of promise, which is a land of defeated enemies. It is a land of rest. Only when rest is seen would the Lord accept these wine libations. And more, a drink offering is poured out in its entirety to the Lord. No part of it was drunk by priests or people. It signifies that they were partially excluded from the Lord's full blessings while they were under the law of Moses. 
Jesus referred to this in the book of Matthew. Nor do they put new wine into old wine skins, or else the wine skins break. The wine is spilled and the wine skins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wine skins and both are preserved. He was speaking of the law and of grace. The new wine is the new dispensation of grace to come. The old wine was the dispensation of the law. Introducing the new concept into the old would not work because they are incompatible. Only when putting the new wine into the new wine skins is the mind changed. Only in Christ does man truly enter into God's victory and rest. This is what is seen in the wine drink offering. And it is why Paul could say this in Philippians chapter 2. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. Paul's labors in the vineyard anticipated his victory and his rest in Christ. It is confirmed in his words to Timothy. He said again in 2 Timothy 4, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Does everybody here love his appearing? Because if you do, I'm telling you what, there is a reward for that and you're going to get a crown for it. It's all I think about day to day to day. Ron and I were talking about that this week. Christ is coming. He's coming for us. Man, I hope it's while I'm alive, but if I kick the bucket on the way out the door today, so be it. I'm going to be with the Lord one way or another. I long for his coming. Verse 14 continues. This is the burnt offering for each month throughout the months of the year. The three types of animals, along with the grain and drink offerings that accompanied them, unite to form a unit, which is the burnt offering for each month on the first of each month, each year. As it says, or in the month, for the months, the year. Each burnt offering represented the month, and together they united to form the required monthly burnt offerings. Over these burnt offerings would be blown those silver trumpets, thus making them a memorial before God concerning the promise of the coming Messiah and what he would do in fulfillment of these mere types and shadows. Along with the burnt offerings, there is verse 15, also one kid of the goats as a sin offering to the Lord shall be offered. It is notable that this sin offering is mentioned only after the burnt offering. As with the Day of Atonement, and at various other times, it is a sayir izim, or a hairy goat. Hair in scripture signifies awareness. In this case, it is an awareness of sin. This is a monthly reminder of the sinful state of these people. Despite having other sin offerings when sin is committed and recognized as such, or which were to cover the sins of the people for the year, meaning on the Day of Atonement, this sin offering is given as a reminder that the people were not free of sin and that they needed continual atonement for it. It was to be for their constant awareness of that fact, and that they were wholly dependent on the Lord for his mercy, not just annually, but from month to month. They were to be aware of their sin and seek its atonement. This monthly hairy goat sin offering was given to represent the human life of Jesus Christ, taking on our nature, but without sin, and yet then taking on our sin at his crucifixion. It is seen in Paul's words to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin 
to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a bargain. What a gift. Verse 15 finishes with, besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering, what is probable, although unstated, is that the sin offering would be the first offered to the Lord. You got to get rid of your sin before you come to the Lord for other things. But it was listed after the other offering, which makes it a notable thing in Scripture. The precedent of following this order has been seen numerous times already. Sin must be first dealt with, and then, when the sin is atoned for, the offender is considered acceptable before God once again. Though these offerings look to Christ and his work, they are offerings of the people in acknowledgement of their state before God. The regular daily and Sabbath offerings were sufficient to make the picture of a people living in a holy manner before the Lord. However, the addition of this monthly sin offering reminded the people that they were never truly detached from sin and that they required an offering for that state. Unlike the daily and Sabbath offerings, which did not mandate any sin offering, the monthly offerings did. The idea seems to be that the people were to offer daily of themselves to the Lord, and they were to do so in anticipation of the coming rest of the Lord each week. But beyond these very short intervals, more was needed. Although most people realize that their life on any given day was not perfect, and for others, they could reflect on the Sabbath that they certainly had offended God in the week gone by. There are some who probably felt that they were acceptable to God even beyond their daily and weekly lives. But the mandating of this sin offering was certainly intended to quash any such thoughts in their heads. The Lord is telling the people month by month of the impossibility of being right before God without atonement. Though less formal than the annual Day of Atonement rituals, this monthly sin offering was to carry the same mental idea for the people to consider. It is certainly because of this sin offering being included as a part of the monthly requirements that this first day of each month's observance became so prominent in Israel. Though it's not given any great detail in the Law of Moses, the beginning of months, or the New Moon Observance, is seen quite a few times in both the Old and the New Testament. We will look over some of those noted times after a short poetic break. The new moon has come at last. From waning to waxing goes the light. A new moon has started. The old is past. From here on out, things will be getting bright. But on this day, we'll observe a rest, and we need to contemplate our state before God. In the past month, we have failed to be our very best, and our walk at times has been really quite flawed. And so a sin offering to the Lord we will make to cover over the misdeeds that we have done. He shows mercy to us for his name's sake. For the Lord our God is the great and merciful one. Yes, the silver trumpets blow for their customary tune. They now blow forth for the burnt offering of the new moon. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is the new moon. The term the beginnings of your months is seen twice in the Bible, in Numbers 10, 10, and in Numbers 28, verse 11. After this, the simple term chodesh, or month, will be used to speak of this day. As the word chodesh can mean a month or a day during the month when singled out, such as the tenth of the month, many translations will use the term the new moon when it is clearly referring to the first of the month. In the New King James Version, there are 22 times in the Old Testament and one in the New where the term is used. Of this day, Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary says this, 
the beginning of the month was known not by astronomical calculations, but according to Jewish writers, by the testimony of messengers appointed to watch the first visible appearance of the new moon and then the fact was announced through the whole country by signal fires kindled on the mountaintops. This is still taught in rabbinic circles today and among Christians who follow their thinking, and it is completely unscriptural. I should have said that before I read it to you because I didn't want you to think that you were being told the truth. This is a problem with reading and accepting Jewish commentaries at face value. They often dismiss what is clearly taught in scripture. For example, a verse from 1 Samuel chapter 20 shows that this is not the biblical way of determining it. Here's what it says in 1 Samuel 20. And David said to Jonathan, Indeed, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go, that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If the Jewish tradition were true, then David would have to had waited until the evening of the next day to see if the new moon had arrived or not. The same thought is expressed in 2 Kings chapter 4 as well. Secondly, to rely on this type of calculation that the Jewish writers state would mean that it was up to man to determine when the month began. If there was a cloud cover or a heavy haze over the land due to a dust storm, one could not be obedient to scripture concerning these offerings on the actual new moon because the people had not cited it. These types of commentaries are both unreliable and they lack the logic and the order which the Bible both reveals and demands. Does everybody understand this is in the law of Moses? This is a command. It's not optional. They must give these on the new moon. And so for them to say, oh, we just wait until there's a signal fire and it goes out all over Israel, they may have actually done that, but that is not what the Bible proclaims. And that's the distinction I'm making. It doesn't matter what Israel did what matters is what the Lord said for them to do. And David understood that when he said, hey, tomorrow's the new moon, right? He knew that that was the day that these offerings were going to be presented. There are two types of moon cycles. The first is known as the sidereal month. That is measured by how long it takes for the moon to complete one full orbit around the earth. That takes 27 days, seven hours, and 43 minutes. That is measured by the moon's position relative to distant fixed stars. This is not what the Bible refers to. The second period is that of the moon's cycle phases, meaning from new moon to new moon. That takes about 29 and one half days. Anybody who knows this, and it would be anybody who lived during those times and who needed to comply with the law of Moses could simply count on their fingers as David probably did and come up with the date of the new moon observance. As far as the new moon observances, other than what is given in Numbers 10 and here in Numbers 28, nothing else is mandated. And yet, other things are seen as being observed later in Scripture. Jameson Fawcett Brown does note this, which appears likely. They say, the new moon festivals having been common among the heathen, it is probable that an important design of their institution in Israel was to give the minds of the people a better direction. And assuming this to have been one of the objects contemplated, it will account for one of the kids being offered unto the Lord, not unto the moon as the Egyptians and Syrians did. The Sabbath and the new moon are frequently mentioned together. More directly, the pulpit commentary says this, there can be no doubt that this, unlike the Sabbath, was a nature festival observed more or less by all nations. 
As such, it did not require to be instituted, but only to be regulated and sanctified in order that it might not lend itself to idolatry, as it did among the heathen. This is certainly the case. Just as the solstices and equinoxes were known to the ancients, which then became nature festivals, so the monthly moon cycles would be too. This could become problematic if not properly dealt with. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, in a warning against idolatry, it says this, And take heed, lest you lift your eyes to heaven, and when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars, all the host of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole heaven as a heritage. Having a new moon observance mandated by the Lord would help the people from making the moon into an idol, simply because the observance was when the moon was at its least strength. Indeed, instead of worshiping a full moon, the people would be observing a new moon to the Lord. It would be as a reminder that he had set the lights in the heavenlies and that he was the one who regulated the timing of their appearances and that he did so with precision. Unfortunately, the people didn't heed and worshiping the heavenly bodies became a customary occurrence in Israel. Jeremiah speaks the word of the Lord concerning this. Jeremiah 8, At that time, says the Lord, they shall bring out the bones of the kings of Judah, and the bones of its princes, and the bones of the priests, and the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the inhabitants of Jerusalem out of their graves. They shall spread them before the sun and the moon and all the host of heaven, which they have loved, and which they have served, and after which they have walked which they have sought, and which they have worshipped. They shall not be gathered nor buried. They shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. That is just one of the many such instances, noting the people's idolatry in worshipping the heavenly bodies. However, as seen in 1 Samuel 20, the time of the new moon was considered a day of particular social gathering. David was expected to sit at a meal with the king. That continues on in 1 Samuel 20, 24 through 26 with these words. And when the new moon had come, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on his seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And Jonathan arose and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He is unclean. Surely he is unclean. In 1 Samuel 4, the new moon is brought to a level commensurate with that of the Sabbath in regards to visiting a prophet of God. It implies that such a thing was most commonly done on one of those two special days. Later in Isaiah, it becomes evident that the new moon wasn't just something that was only observed at the sanctuary by the priests or by the king. Rather, what Isaiah says shows that it was something observed by all the people. Bring no more futile sacrifices Incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They are a trouble to me. I am weary of bearing them. The new moons are elevated here to the same level as the Sabbaths, calling of assemblies, and appointed feasts. Each of these involve the common people as well as the leaders. And even more, in Amos, the new moon can be seen to not only be a day of observance to the Lord, but a day of rest among the people. When will the new moon be passed, he asks, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. 
even sell the bad wheat. The implication here is that the new moon was a day, like the Sabbath, when selling was not allowed. Despite not being mandated by the Lord directly, it was considered a day set apart in a unique way, just as the Sabbath was. But because of the people's attitude toward the Lord, and because of the abuse of their relationship with Him, including their defilement of these sacred days, the Lord told the people of Israel this through the prophet Hosea, I also will cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. Paul then uses this same thought in the book of Colossians to show that all of these things are now obsolete in Christ. He says, so let no one judge you in food or drink, that's your dietary laws of Leviticus 11 and elsewhere, or regarding a festival, that's the feasts of the Lord from Leviticus 23 and elsewhere, or a new moon right here, or Sabbaths found all throughout the law of Moses, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. I read that to you last week. It still pertains this week, folks. Do not get caught up in the law of Moses. It is a picture. It is a shadow. And the reality is Christ. It is a part of Paul's standard warning. Israel failed to properly observe their own Lord-directed observances. They failed to honor him and to obey the precepts of the law. They fulfilled the imagery that Paul lays out in the book of Galatians. Get rid of the law. Get rid of the bondservant. Remember that? The mother and the bondservant? You got Hagar, you got Sarah, and they're making pictures of the law and grace. Get rid of the law. That's what he's saying there in the book of Galatians. The law was not an end in and of itself, but a means of showing Israel how desperately they needed something else, something far better. It was merely, as Paul says in the New Testament, a tutor to take them by the hand and lead them directly to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ. They could not fulfill the law, but Christ Jesus could. And in his fulfilling, he brought to an end the law of Moses. Paul's words in Colossians are a warning against anyone attempting to bring you back under that same failed system that they themselves cannot live by. The new moon, along with the dietary laws, the feast days, and the Sabbaths were simply shadows of what would come in Christ. He is the substance, and he is to be our constant reminder of God's love for us. By following the Bible through the various times the new moon is mentioned, we can see that it was a day which was set apart to the Lord. There are 12 months in the Hebrew calendar, and thus there were 12 new moon observances each year. 12 is the number of perfection of government. It is the monthly sin offering which makes this picture come alive. Three signifies the divine, heavenly number. Four signifies that of creation. Multiplied, they speak of organization. The government of the Lord comes together for man through these monthly reminders of man's sin and of what Christ would do to atone for it. Christ died for our sins only once, but the monthly reminders come together in an organized way to show what that one sacrifice would accomplish. A government not based on the effects of sin, as is the law of Moses, but a government based on freedom from sin as is the new covenant of grace. The heavenly unites with the earthly in a restored eternal kingdom because of his perfect offering for sin. For those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, we have received this in the church. Someday Israel will understand this as well. In the book of Ezekiel, we read this. Thus says the Lord God, the gateway of the inner court that faces toward the east shall be shut the six working days, but on the Sabbath it shall be opened and 
on the day of the new moon, it shall be opened. Someday Israel will observe these things, not as a means of being right with God because of self, nor as anticipatory of Messiah. Rather, they will be observed as commemorative of what Christ has done and of an imputed righteousness because of his work both the Sabbath and the new moon, and indeed all of these now fulfilled aspects of the law of Moses will find their proper place in the realization that Christ has done it all. It is all done in him. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Here we are today at the end of another couple of verses from the books of Moses. And once again, we see that it all points to a reality which is found in Jesus Christ. And God is making it clear to us that there is but one path to be reconciled to God. I typed a commentary on 1 Peter chapter 3 today. I started the book of Peter, even though it's another eight or nine days for you guys going through the book of James. I type them about 10 or 11 days in advance. But 1 Peter chapter 3, I explain very clearly how Jesus Christ is the only way to be reconciled to God the Father. There is no other way. And the reason why is very simple. Three-letter word. Anybody? Sin. Sin is the problem. Sin infinitely separates us from God. One sin, and you've broken the whole law. The law is done. It's broken. One sin, and it separates you. God is infinite. Remember we're talking about creation? Creation consists of time, space, and matter, right? If he created those things, then that means he's before those things. He's outside of those things. He's not limited by time, and so he is infinite. And here we are sitting in the creation, and we are finite. The finite cannot ever attain to the infinite. And worse, guess what? We're born in sin. That's the doctrine of original sin. All of us are born with sin. Ask David. He wrote it in the 51st Psalm. That's a doctrine that's clearly taught in the Bible. So here we are born in sin, and then we commit sins as we go along through life. I didn't lie, Mommy. And that's another lie on top of the first lie, right? Okay. So we've sinned, and we are in time. And guess what? Time is going this way. We can't go back and undo the sin. And we can't get rid of our original sin because we'd have to go back to Adam. And we can't do that. He's in the grave. He's dead. So we're stuck. We are infinitely separated from God the Father because of that three-letter word, sin. But Jesus Christ was born without sin because he is from God the Father. And sin is inherited through the Father, not the mother. That was the importance of the incarnation. A child born in a womb, so he's fully human, but born with no sin because he came from the Father. He is the God-man. And he was born, believe it or not, under this very law that here we are saying, I can't do that. I can't do that. He was born under the law of Moses without sin. So he's qualified to take away our sin. But is he capable? And that's what the Gospels are there for, to show us that Jesus Christ was capable. He never sinned. I find no fault in this man. And then he gave that life up in exchange for our sin. And when he died, it wasn't for his sin. He died for our sin. Everybody got that? So if you call on Christ, your sin goes into the grave with him. It is dead. It is gone. No more sin for you. And guess what? Even better, it says, after he came out of the grave in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19, that God isn't counting our sins against us because we're not under law. Law is how you get sin. By the law is the knowledge of sin. We're not under law. It's, unless you want to put yourself back under law. And what does that do? That condemns you. So here you are, you're... Given Christ's righteousness when he died because he took away your sin, but he did something. He didn't just stay in the grave with your sin. Peter says in Acts chapter 2 that it was impossible that the grave could hold him. Impossible. Because he had no sin. Death can't hold him. 
and he came out of the grave. One, it proves that his claim is true, and two, it proves that you have eternal life because your sin is gone. He is not counting your sins against you because you're no longer under law but under grace, and you have eternal life. It is not next year. It's not after you die. It is right now. You have eternal life. People that teach you the doctrine of loss of salvation do not understand the greatness of the thing that God did in Jesus Christ. It is faulted theology because it doesn't understand the glory of what God did for us. If you have never called on Jesus Christ by a simple act of faith, I believe that Jesus Christ died for my sins. I believe he went into the grave and I believe he rose again. The Bible says you'll be saved if you believe that in your heart. You are saved. And you will never lose that as long as you live because of the glory and majesty of the great God who loves us so much. I'm going to read you that verse just so you know what I'm talking about. Think on it today when you go home. 1 Peter chapter 3. I'll read you 1 and 2 just because it's the introduction and we'll get to verse 3. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Remember what Moses when he went up to the Lord and he appealed for the people because they had done something so horrifying, what did he appeal to? He didn't appeal to anything other than you are long-suffering and merciful. You are abundant in mercy. He understood, and it's not a weakness in God, but it is a point that we can cling to in God, that God is merciful. And if we can cling to that, God, nothing in heaven or on earth or in hell below can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus because of God's abundant mercy. Remember that. It's a wonderful lesson for us to think about. Our closing verse comes from Isaiah 66. It's verse 23. This is looking ahead a little bit. For as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your descendants in your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Lord. Next week, Numbers 28, 16 through 31. Here come more profferings, Passover and the unleavened bread and weeks offerings. That'll be our 56th number sermon. And the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and he has a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you were out there lost in the desert wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay, there we go. Our poem is called The New Moon Offerings, but before I give it, I've got a Mercedes for somebody that can figure this out. Well, I, I said a Mercedes, I meant a Maserati. This is a Maserati. <laughs> I had a lady in a Mercedes follow me all the way down Fort, or, uh, I-75 yesterday. I thought, I wonder if I'm being followed. And then she kept going when I turned. So I just, you know, you kind of get, I, I pulled off onto I-75 and followed, and I just was spooked. So that, I'm thinking Mercedes go, but this is a Maserati. Okay. What book of the Bible mentions the moon first and which mentions it last? Anybody? Which book of the Bible mentions the moon first? 
Uh, Genesis. Genesis says it first. Okay, can you give the scripture on that? Fourth day. <laughs> it's only implicitly mentioned there. It's called the lesser light. It's not called the moon, but I'll give it to you. All right. And then the last, the last book of the Bible? Revelation. Revelation. Okay. All right. So it's Genesis and Revelation. Then I'll read you that really quickly here, just so you're theologically schooled on this matter. We've got uh, Genesis 1, verse 6. And I, I said the fourth day. I hope I was right about that. Hang on. Um, uh, God called the light uh, morning first day. Um, okay, let me get there. Made two great lights. Okay, it says here, I said six, it's 16. I couldn't read my handwriting. 16, then God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. Okay, then we got to go to Genesis 37 verse 9 to actually see the moon mentioned for the first time. So it's both correct. 37.9 says, Then he dreamed still another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Look, I have dreamed another dream. At this time, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. First mention of the moon explicitly. The first is an inference, okay? Or it's, it's a reference, but it's not explicitly stated. And then finally, here we go. Wonderful stuff in a wonderful chapter of the Bible. It'd be okay if I went a little faster there, Charlie. Okay, uh, Revelation 21, verse 23. It says this, the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The lamb is its light. Thank God for Jesus Christ. I'll say this again during the Thursday Bible study, I hope, but I said during the Thursday Bible study, and I've said it many times, but people always email me and they question, what are you talking about? We will never see God the Father. God the Father is spirit. He dwells in an unapproachable light that no man has seen or can see. There's evidence abundance in the Bible for that. We will never see God because if we could see God, we would be God because he is infinite. We can never perceive God the Father. And that's why we have God the Son. First, that's why we have creation. God created and we can see what God has done. But Jesus Christ is fully man and fully God. We see the exalted and glorified state of Jesus Christ the man. He is the one revealing to us endlessly, ceaselessly, and forever God the Father. But we will never see God the Father, and we will never see the Holy Spirit, okay? That's just something that you need to get your doctrine right on, that we can do it on the blackboard. Again, I've done it several times, but I just want people to understand, don't say I'm going to go see God someday. You will see God, but it'll be God the Son as he reveals God the Father to you, just as creation is revealing God's handiwork to you. Okay, good. Poem. The new moon offerings. At the beginnings of your months, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, and seven lambs without blemish in their first year. Three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour is a grain offering mixed with oil for each bull. Please listen in here. Two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour is a grain offering mixed with oil for the one ram according to this word. And one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil is a grain offering for each lamb as a burnt offering of sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Their drink offering shall be half a hen of wine for a bull, one-third of a hen for a ram, and for a lamb, one-fourth of a hen. This is the burnt offering for each month, throughout the months of the year, as each month does begin. Also, one kid of the goats is a sin offering to the Lord, shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering according to this word. Lord God, we are even now in the wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O oh God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. 
Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the many blessings of this life. Thank you for the fact that we have the fullness of Christ, which was only seen in type and shadow. And it's hard for us to not see what Israel missed. You know, they, they had all of these things they did month by month, day by day, year by year. And when Christ came, he fulfilled every one of them. How could they have missed it? But they did. And today, so many people in the world are still missing this glorious son of yours that you sent into the world to redeem us from sin. Help eyes to be opened and help us to be the ones that are willing to simply open our mouths and speak. Help us to do this, Lord, to go out into the streets and just simply say, I know that there is hope and that I want to tell you about him. Lord God, may it be so. And Lord, you heard all of the people at the beginning of the service that we mentioned with prayer needs. We would ask that you would be with them and help them through their difficulties and trials. And even if you do not heal them for whatever reason it is you decide, at least give them enough strength to praise you. And I know that in praising you, they will be built up in their own walk with you. So give them that, Lord. And we love you and we do praise you. We exalt you in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.